So I'm on the streets of London, and um, like I said, it went really well back in August, but the first night of outreach did not go so well. We get our packs with all of our supplies, we hand out New Testaments everywhere, we've got all of our lines down, and we, we hit it. We're handing out Bibles, Hadia Majania, Hadia Majania, do you know that? That's, of course you don't. Free gift, free gift for you. Free New Testament for you. And um, 10 minutes in, day one, this guy goes by and he hops off of his bike and he just runs right over to the, probably the nicest person in our group and he says, no New Testament, no New Testament, no, only Final Testament, only Final Testament of Muhammad, only Final Testament. Hala Akbar! And I'm getting real nervous at this point. Ten minutes in. That changed my evening. <laughs> I think about that trip in two chapters. That was the beginning of chapter two. <laughs> and a lot was really hard about that night because a couple other guys yelled at me. And, um, but do you know what the hardest part about that night was? It was the realization of what was true all along. That I can't change people. Some people just don't want to hear it. No matter how nice I am, no matter how many times I invite them over to my house, all that was stripped away. This man was closed. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Because like, maybe you haven't been on a trip like that before. And maybe you haven't been yelled at like that. Maybe it went more polite. But, you know, you just, you just want to love people. And you want, to, you want to share the gospel with them. And you want them to heal. And they just say no. What do you do with that? Is there hope for people like that? What if you're one of those people? That's what this text is about. We talked a lot about this topic last week, where we closed the section on God's judgment towards nations who stubbornly trust in things other than Him. And for the next month, we're going to talk about those things. The things which people stubbornly hold on to instead of the Lord. Here's why. The judgment of the Lord isn't done. It's coming yet. I mean, Christ has offered us relief, salvation from the coming judgment. But only if we are truly His. And, I might add, there are so many ways to get it wrong. In fact, Isaiah is going to walk us through a number of those ways over the next month. These are, are things that we trust in that will not merely hurt us. These are not little things for us to work on. These are things that will seduce us and they will kill us. Because these things fail to do what only the Lord can do. 
Now, God begins this new section of Isaiah, chapter 28, if you'd like to turn there, by aiming right at the heart. He speaks to one of the worst things you can trust in, and that is yourself. He talks about pride. So, to the Muslim who refuses the gospel all the way over on the streets of London, all the way to the longtime churchgoer who refuses to trust in Jesus, let us look at God and his word and see what God does with proud people. People who say no. And then let us throw ourselves on the saving power of Christ alone. We're on your first point of your outline. Drunk souls reject the Lord's clear word. Let me read the first 10 verses of chapter 28. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty, overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it. As soon as it is in his hand, in that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine, they stagger with strong drink, they reel in vision, they stumble in given judgment, for all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, Line upon line, here a little and there a little. That's quite a picture. So God speaks to two groups here. I don't know if you caught that. And so I'm going to first focus on group number one. That's verses one through six. This is Ephraim. And its most prominent city is a place you might have heard of if you're familiar with the rest of the Bible called Samaria. And look at what's happened to these people who are God's people. Verse 1 calls the people proud and drunk and a a fading flower and overcome with wine. So not simply spiritually drunk, although I think that's happened too. They are actual drunkards. And they used to be beautiful. Beautiful. They're fading. So, I want you to imagine here, not, do not imagine here, like a drunk freshman who never knew better. Don't think of that. 
I want you to instead imagine a beloved husband who has lost his way. And after years of excess, his wife and kids come home one day because they have taken a break to get away from him. And he opens the door and he can't even say their names correctly. That is Ephraim. That's verses 2 through 4. The Lord comes and he sees this travesty. And he, I think in mercy, lays low his people like a storm. And they're so intoxicated, I bet they miss every sign of danger. In fact, verse 4 is perhaps the clearest picture of this. They are swallowed up like a ripe fig. They had figs in London. You could get them pretty easily. They are sweet and delicious, and they go down very quickly. Poetically, I think what's going on here is that the Lord is letting them die by the same method by which they lived. You know, they're just swallowing every method of earthly comfort. Instead of feasting on the word of the Lord. And so the Lord is allowing them to be swallowed whole. And sadly, it gets worse. I'm going to skip verses 5 and 6 for right now. Let me just move on to the next people group. These also, this is referring to Jerusalem itself, starting with verse 7. And the prophets and the priests are drunk. You thought the drunk husband was sad. Now imagine that same mom gets out of the house and takes her kids down the street to church and the pastor is leaning on the pulpit to keep from falling over. This is sad. And this is not a metaphor. We're still in verse 7. These people have no counsel to offer, no vision. Verse 8, there's vomit everywhere. There's literally room for nothing else. In fact, it's so bad. Verse 9, almost in a humorous way, imagines a reality where babies are better candidates. In other words, they can't even speak and they are still better candidates than the current pastoral team. Verse 9 is what makes it such a sad picture. God's leaders are so intoxicated that the clear word of the Lord is reduced to a bunch of rules and lines and instead of making sense, it's just gibberish. In other words, these people are God's messengers and they can't read the message, much less teach it. Let's pause on that for a moment. If the application you got from this is don't drink alcohol, you've missed the point. Although, I would advise you, please do not get drunk. What led God's people here? 
Because when you think about it, all alcohol does is show people who you really were the whole time. It just takes away all the filters. I mean, there are broken families and there are broken churches in the Bible and all throughout the world without a drop of alcohol anywhere. No, it was their own pride. That's what got them here. That's what got them picking up the bottle. They wear this crown and they pretend they're kings and they just relax and they stop listening to what the Lord has to say. Can I flesh this out with an example? Because I grew up in a, in a dry household, so I can't relate to this very much. Every night, when my daughters go to sleep, the temptation is to think about what I feel like doing. And let me tell you how it used to go. Regularly, I'd just get a big bowl of snacks, sit down in a comfortable chair, get the computer out, no agenda. Had an agenda all day, I'm done with that. And then, later those nights, without fail, I would regularly find myself preoccupied with fear, preoccupied with sadness, preoccupied with any number of miserable thoughts. Every time. And even if the rest of my day went well, I often landed it like a plane with no wheels. Where did I go wrong? You know? Do I need filters on my computer? Do I need a a padlock on my refrigerator? Do I need to work standing up? Now those things aren't bad. But here's where I lost the battle. I lost it when I said, now is the time to do whatever I feel like doing. And some of us go to church and we land our days like this every day and we don't even realize how drunk we are. That's pride. And it kills. And in this case, it's killed with alcohol. But it's more creative than to limit itself to just that. Pride killed Ephraim and Jerusalem. And all it took was for them to love themselves instead of the Lord. And now they're drowning. And so what does God do with these people? What do we do with these people? What do we do with us if we're those people? Let's keep reading. Point two, the Lord will confound them further. Verses 11 through 22. For by people of strange lips... And with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary. And this is reposed, yet they would not hear. And the word of them, word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, the grave, we have made an agreement 
When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled. And your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you'll be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through by day and night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on. And the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim. As in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed and to work his work. Alien is his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Okay, that was a lot. So so bear with me. I'm going to move quickly through some of these verses. And my hope is to try to help you understand what God does with proud people. First, he hands them over. He confounds them further in that way. He hands them over, in this case, to face the consequences of their sin. Verse 11 is referring to the foreign nation who would conquer Judah. Assyria, in this case. We know that all played out. So what's happening in verse 11 is more poetic justice. God's people are literally so intoxicated that they can't understand God's words. And so God is handing them over to people whose words they won't understand. It's like, you want confusion? I'll give you confusion. But then, something amazing happens. God confounds them further by handing them over to rescue Let me reread verse 16. Therefore, says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So the people and even the leaders are too drunk to stand And they've signed their own death warrant. And the Lord gives them a cornerstone to stand on. You're drunk. Stand here. You won't fall over. Now let me touch on a few ways the whole Bible speaks about this one verse. Romans 9 says this stone is sure because it is one of faith. And not works. And here's all that means. We're still talking of the pride. Say you sober up that drunk priest in Jerusalem. Can he honor all the words he's reading? No. That's how they got here. Of course not. Drunk or sober. That's what makes the stone such a sure foundation. 
It's the Lord himself settling the deal. So your job is to believe, to trust in the cornerstone, not your ability to stand. First Peter 2.6 has something to say about this. It says, this stone is our honor as believers. So in other words, God rightly allows us to see the effects of our sin. But it is our honor to mercifully be allowed to survive and even stand firm. What an honor this is to be allowed a way out from something that we couldn't possibly get ourselves out of. And all of this builds up to one application for God's people in verse 22. Do not scoff. Therefore, in other words, do not take this cornerstone lightly. But, if you know your history, and if you think about the context of Romans 9... Looking back over history, you know that many people did take the cornerstone lightly, pridefully. They rejected the cornerstone, who we know to be Jesus. Philippians 2 tells us, as a humble servant, Jesus came with no pride. And they hung him on a cross, pridefully. And later, they doubted his resurrection, pridefully. And years later, these same people, in their pride, rejected the the disciples and the apostles and Paul. And they made church and religion all about them, instead of about God. They read 1 Corinthians. They were still getting drunk on the communion wine. And that's the confusing part about this. That's what makes interactions like the ones on the streets of London so hard. Look back at verse 5 and 6, which I skipped earlier. The people who glory in the Lord. In other words, the people who trust the cornerstone, they're a remnant. A small number of people. Which means at the time of history, thousands who heard Isaiah's message do not sober up. And today, millions, billions, do not sober up. And the Lord has set it up this way. Doesn't that seem strange? Why would there be such a happy ending reserved for so few? What tension these verses bring when you think about it. Sweetness for so few And drunkenness for so many. But there is hope. 
Let me walk us through the last section of text. This is the Lord's wisdom. Verses 23 and 29. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, so cumin, and put wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and emmer is the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick, and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he doesn't thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Did you guys get it? No, I didn't either. (laughs) Trick question. What does this mean? Why am I ending a sermon with this? (laughs) Well, you can do what you can with the farming terminology. There's a lot of it that's just really hard to understand. But, as is true, the cross-references, when, when, when you're not sure what the Bible means, use the Bible to explain the Bible. So, let verses 26 and 29 guide you. Verse 26, God teaches. Verse 29, God is wonderful in counsel. God is excellent in wisdom. In other words, just as there is a right method for farming, something common that people can understand and the source of life, so there is a method to the Lord who is the author of life. There is an order. The first Peter reference I quoted earlier gives a little bit more illumination here, I think. It says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I mean, this is Peter literally looking back and he he saw it all play out. So in other words, God set it up this way. And in reality, when it all boils down, that is the only reasoning you need. I mean, we don't deserve an explanation. Some in their pride, many in their pride, just never sober up. But if that's not enough for you, I thought about it and I have one more line for you. Let me take it back to Jesus. Here's why we shouldn't mock the way that the Lord does things. Because... It is by the same strange wisdom of the Lord that would cause him to leave his throne, not in pride, but in humility and die on a cross for prideful people like you and me. That same wisdom that baffled you It saved you. Now all that that I just said, that's a reference from Philippians. 
And guess what? On Friday night in London, our last outreach night, in the last 10 minutes, I shared that verse with a Muslim man. And guess what? He took a Bible. And in a way, I think that's an example of how something nebulous and huge like pride and something like God's method of not saving everybody reconciles. Because we're not God. Because I'm not God and you're not God. We don't know who those people are. So we tell everybody. Here's the main point. In the Lord's great wisdom, he confounds those who reject his word, but he mercifully spares some. So how does all this apply to us? Number one, let us not cheapen the gospel in fear of rejection. Let us preach Christ crucified and resurrected here every week. Let us never get tired of hammering the same nail. Because eventually, if we do that, people are going to start to hate us. Jesus said this would happen. I mean, I'll be honest. I can sometimes get so afraid of the offense of the gospel. Maybe that happens to you. Thanksgiving's coming up. You might have some awkward conversations waiting for you. Let us not be surprised by this. Why do we get surprised? Why do I get shocked? When people reject the gospel. You know what's funny? You fast forward to the New Testament. The Holy Spirit comes. And it rests on the uh, apostles. And they go out into the streets. Just like I went out in London. They start calling out to the crowds. Guess what people thought they were? Do you remember? Say it. Drunk. Drunk people think sober people are drunk. That's your hope. If they're drunk, you can't change them. Pray for them. Share the gospel. Don't get tired. And be glad to stand out. Second, uh, second application, let us not become drunk with pride. Because those verses, man, when they talk about the leaders, I'm getting up to preach. I recognize the weight of these words. And let's be careful because this one, this one happens gradually. You know, you get yelled at, you get confronted, that kind of snaps you out of it. Pride's sneaky. It sneaks in through the back door. 
But it starts in the same way every time as it did when I put my kids down for the night. It starts with this thought. It's all about me. Maybe it goes like this for you. Maybe you just get tired of praying for your neighbors. You just get tired of praying for the same things. Or you're just addicted to something and you can't seem to stop. So you give up. You just roll over and take another drink of pride. Maybe you stop reading your Bible. You know? You're like, all right, I'm going to go all the way through it. And you, get, you hit Leviticus and you're like, I'm done. Students, it can look any number of ways. It's hard for me to think back that far. But um, it could look like getting obsession over grades, you know. I'm just going to let the fellowship kind of slide. Let my neighbors slide. Let that drunk person slide. I'm going to just stay here and get A's and go make a bunch of money. Or it might go the other way. It might be like a bunch of Netflix. It goes that route. And slowly but surely in every case, God's word eventually becomes line after line, precept after precept. Here a little, there a little. And then one day we wake up and we realize were the drunk spouses and the priests that we just read about. And the crazy thing about pride, I was thinking about this some more, the crazy thing about pride is it doesn't just lead us to sin. It can even tangle our view of repentance. Let me explain. Let's go back to me putting down my kids for bed. You know? Maybe I relax. Maybe I start eating snacks and then, by God's grace, I sober up. Wait a minute, what am I doing? No, no, no. That was death. Don't I remember? And I stop and I think, you know that pride can creep in then? You know, Dan, you went this far. Dan, you already thought about it. Dan, you did it once. You might as well do it again. You failed. You see, the reason why is because that's works-based repentance. Just like we read about in Romans 9. It's about works and not faith. Because faith instead says this when those thoughts kick in. Faith says, yeah, you know what? I have fallen short. And you know what? I'm going to fall short again. Probably before I go to bed. But you know what? Christ is sufficient. And then, and only then, can I turn from whatever is distracting me and I look at the face of the Lord. That's how you kill pride. It's acknowledging your weakness and your drunkenness, but throwing yourself on the cornerstone, who will not fail. Church, this is a battle, isn't it? Every day. And like I said earlier, there are so many ways to lose that battle. 
But by God's mercy, there is strangely and amazingly and beautifully one way to get it right. And that's Jesus. And he will not fail us. Let us trust him for the judgment to come and the eternity after. Let me pray for us. Dear God, I thank you so much for your word. And Lord, you humble, you humble me. And Lord, I trust that you're humbling anyone listening to this who is pridefully thinking that they cannot be saved and that they cannot be held fast by the cornerstone. Lord, your word is true and your foundation is sure. Amen.